Good to see you. How's it going, friends? It's been a few weeks since I've been here, a few months, as a matter of fact. I think it was like January. Um, but it's good to be back, and uh, it'll be good to be here these last three weeks. Coincidentally, these are the last three weeks of my time in New York. So um, my family and I were moving to Grand Rapids, Michigan, where I'll be pastoring a church there. And um, we've thoroughly enjoyed not just our time in New York, but uh, this has become kind of a second spiritual home for me as I'm here every few months. Uh, so thank you for the way in which you've loved me. Um, so for the next three weeks, we're going to be looking at different stories that Jesus told about the kingdom of God. It was Emily Dickinson, the great American poet, who once said that if you're going to tell truth, tell it slant. And she continued on in her poem and said, the truth must dazzle gradually or every man be blind. This sort of understanding that the truth that is sort of embedded in the cosmos that God has created to be true, that is God, that, that we begin to receive, we have to receive it in sort of doses because too much of God at one time is crushing for us. And the way Jesus got at hard teachings was often obliquely. And those who were interested in discovering truth of what he said, they would go home and they would chew on these stories. And over the course of their life, as they lived and recalled these sort of tales that Jesus would tell, these stories would unpack in their hearts and they would begin to understand the significance of what Jesus was saying. That sort of meets us in whatever moment that we're in. And so there's this parable I was going to teach this week, but then Baton Rouge happened. And then Minnesota happened. And then Dallas happened. And my heart sank. I think one of the calls, if not one of, if not one of the most primary call of the Christian is to feel. I think that's one of the things that the Psalms tell us about, which obviously you've been a part of this summer. It's one of the things of when, it, when we're called to participate in the life of Christ, it means that when we hear tragedy, it's not enough to just understand that that happened as a piece of information, but when we begin to participate in the life of God, it goes beyond just saying, isn't that tragic? Or wow, that shouldn't have happened. But we're invited to feel what God feels because this wasn't the design God had for the world. And humans continually take our freedom and exploit it for our own purposes, which leads to all sorts of greed and violence and power that seeks to kill and destroy and to rob and wound. And I think one of the invitations that we have to take God seriously in is feeling with God the tragedy, feeling with God the depths of despair, and what that must feel like for the one who originally created, who will in the end woo everything to his creative ends and redemptive ends. But for the moment, there's a lot we should sit in and lament. It was the great 20th century theologian Karl Barth who recommended that Christians, quote, take your Bible and take your newspaper and read them both, but read your newspaper from your Bible excuse me, interpret your newspaper from your Bible. In other words, Christianity is at its best when it seeks to interpret current events with ancient truth, current events with ancient reality. So today I'm going to attempt to speak into the gravity of this cultural moment through the parable of the Good Samaritan. I'm going to teach an entirely different parable that I stayed up last night and just wanted to 
bring something fresh, something that actually translates into where we are specifically in this moment. Because I think the church needs to speak in moments like this and not glib, trite sort of truths of saying, there, there, it'll all get better someday, hopefully, but sort of this understanding that I think the Spirit equips the truth more than any other people group in the world to say something into this moment. I think the gospel equips us for these kinds of moments. So let me be very clear. Today, I do not teach as a conservative or liberal, a Republican or Democrat, nor do I teach as a Presbyterian, a Baptist, a Methodist, or an Episcopalian, though I've dabbled in all of these traditions at some point in my life. I seek to shed any constraints that would domesticate or manipulate the proclamation of the kingdom of God this morning. And I hope you'll join me in that effort. And at the end, I think you're going to say something in your heart like this. Ah, this is really hard. God, help me because I cannot do this without you. Let's pray together as we begin this morning. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we we thank you for your invitation to join you in participating in this world. I pray this morning as we unpack this text and look at what it means for this past week and the tragedy of events, that you give us clarity, precision, and discernment about who you are calling us to be in the 21st century. Who are you calling us to be in this city, Summit? Who you are calling us to be in this church called Renaissance? We ask this in your name. Amen. This morning I want to talk about the misers and the widgets and the cosmos. The Misers and the Widgets and the Cosmos, coincidentally a terrible name for a children's sci-fi trilogy. And I I think the parable of the Good Samaritan, as we go through it, will illumine what I mean by these three terms. So let's begin with the text before anything else. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. Just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. That's a big statement, by the way. Just then a lawyer stood up to test God. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to them, what's written in the law? What do you read there? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you've answered right. Do this and you will live. Now here's an interesting phrase. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who's my neighbor? And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem. Here comes the parable, okay? Here's the story that God's inviting us to carry in our souls with us as long as we live. A man was going down. Actually, before I read this, understand this, that that the things we do end up doing something in us. Like that's the point of scripture. That's the point of worship. That's why we sing. That's why we sometimes say certain phrases. That's why we pray together because we, we believe somehow as we engage our hearts and our minds and our will and our strength, as we bring ourselves to these things and do these things that somehow over the course of time, they start doing their things to us. It's the same with communion. That as we do this meal over time, it begins to do mysterious things to us. That's the beautiful thing of what we're called to in Christian spirituality. It says this in verse 30, Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, 
right? So this is a specific tribe. They were the priests of Israel, a Levite, so a holy man from the very beginning of his life. When he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. Now this would be like, this would be like Sunni radical ISIS seeing Gizidis. That's the sort of diabolical hatred between these people groups at this point. Samaritans and the Jews, and I'll, I'll share that briefly in a moment. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him. And when he saw him, he was moved with pity. And he went to him and bandaged his wounds, and having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he went out, he took out two denarii, and he gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I'll pay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think was a man, was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Now, this was a hard saying. This is a really hard story that I think rattled around for a long time in, the, in the, the ears of the listeners as they went home and processed this sort of strange thing. I think it would have rubbed against the grain of every listener. One of the, one of the things about Jesus is he's constantly through his teachings inadvertently sending people away. People are constantly leaving him. The crowds are constantly gathering and then diminishing. Like, Jesus had a terrible marketing strategy for church growth. He was constantly losing followers because his teachings were hard. And the reason his teachings were hard is they rubbed against the grain of the audience in front of them. He always wanted to dismantle the things that they cling to that were just a little off, that needed to be disrupted. And Jesus was essentially dismantling this man's tribal, insular, self-righteous, self-seeking, groupthink worldview, which is not so dissimilar to what I think the Spirit wants to do in our time. So my question for you this morning, you're here, so maybe let's just agree to engage and use our minds and our hearts this morning. My, my question to you to begin with is this, is it possible that there is room for growth in your worldview? Is that a possibility? that maybe your worldview isn't, hasn't stopped in its growth, that maybe there's more development for you in terms of understanding life from God's point of view. My, my next invitation for you this morning is this. Would you perhaps allow God to expand your worldview through this parable today to better reflect the width of the shape of the kingdom? Would that be an invitation you would be up for at least considering this morning. I love the words of Hans Urs von Balthasar. I love just saying that, quite frankly. That's like a strong name. That's like a good name if you're going to say things about God, right? I need a von thrown in my name. It's A.J. Von Cheryl. Um, he says this, and, and this wrecked me a couple weeks ago as I was reading his book, Engagement with God. Good title, by the way. He says this, the most significant thing in life that can happen to our neighbor is his being taken seriously as a person. Boom. Significant. I can tell you the batching, the things that we have done because we've robbed people of their individual uniqueness and batched them into people groups that we label and demonize and discard as inferior. It's unbelievable how much dehumanization is happening in the world right now, all over the globe. I want to suggest that the gospel of Christ 
has a transformative capacity to expand our embrace of those who you currently view as outsiders, whoever those people might be. And that's very, very hard. Especially as we age, because we sort of want to shrink our worldview and solidify it and put it in cement and stop allowing the wet cool of God to expand that and bring it into a place where God can shape and continue to mold our worldview. So let's talk about misers. Social psychologist uh, Shelley Taylor and Susan Fisk, they coined the term cognitive miser. Let's say that together. Cognitive miser. Let's do it again because I didn't feel you in that moment. Ready? Cognitive miser, right? It means that humans have a natural propensity to conserve mental energy. It's actually a strategy. We walk around without even knowing it. Our brains want to conserve energy so that they can be devoted to things later in the day that might be more important. The human brain is, is, is limited in our capacity to process information. And in today's age of 24-hour news coverage and addictions to smartphones and adverts and incessant text messaging and pervasive social media, our brains are tired. So here's what they do. Here's what the brain, here's what you do. The brain naturally uses mental shortcuts to conserve energy. It's how it works. Does that make sense? So let's think about this through the parable. The lawyer has a worldview. And Jesus is beginning to dismantle that worldview. And his worldview might go something like this. All Samaritans are the same. That's how he's learned how to batch Samaritans and walk actually a different path because we don't want to go through Samaria. We actually avoid them at all costs because all Samaritans are the same. They're all false worshipers of our God. They're religious posers. Therefore, it is mind-blowing when Jesus tells the Samaritan in the story over and against the priest and the Levite, their own people, their holy people, over and against. It's, it's, it's interesting because not only is the Samaritan present, which they would have said, well, why is he there? Why did you put him in the story? But he actually is the hero of the story. A hard teaching would be this. A hard teaching for listeners would be for a Jew to care for a wounded Samaritan on this steep and dangerous road that was called the bloody path. An even harder teaching, which is what Jesus gives, is that the Samaritan isn't the rescuee. The Samaritan is actually the rescuer. I mean, this was a Jesus mic drop. This was one of those moments of them saying, what did he just do? Who is this guy? Do we really want to keep following? Jesus' listeners have no category for this equation that he sets up because we're natural cognitive misers. We put individuals into larger groups and then label those groups to conserve mental energy. And there's a word for that, and the word is stereotype, which brings us to widgets. What are widgets? Widgets is this sort of fictional business term that's applied generally to products across the board. It's a way of homogenizing. It's a way of categorizing. And I want to suggest that over time, we're prone to treat humans like widgets. Another black life taken. Another blue officer down. Another Muslim radicalized. 
And the cognitive miser in us will tempt us to think black lives are prone to criminality. Blue officers are brutal racists. Muslims are radical terrorists. Now, to be sure, categories at times can be somewhat helpful. We categorize in the animal kingdom down to the level of species. History has eras. Politics have colors like red and blue. Indeed, we have so much intel, more than ever in human history, streaming at us that it is impossible to avoid categories altogether because our brains have to process information. And all of this information coming to us at once, we need to create these containers to put things in. In fact, categories can at times save our lives. For a child in certain regions of South Africa to categorically realize that all wild Lions are predators, can save that child's life. It doesn't even have to think. It already has a category for the lion when it sees it, right? Maybe this will relate to you. For a parent to assume that before attending a Katy Perry concert, they will, with great probability, be surrounded mostly by screaming middle school girls, it can save a parent from significant hearing loss, right? Like we have categories for things like that. And those categories can be helpful. And sometimes they can be accurate. But categories have drawbacks as well. When we apply the idea of widgets to people groups and stereotypes emerge, people are batched into groups that we feel like are different than my group. And then they're subconsciously labeled inferior, or maybe not quite to the level of humanity at which I live, rather than seeing them as individuals with their own unique stories and callings and dreams. And what happens over time is we begin to rally around those of us that um, often share the, the people that we begin to rally around, the groups we begin to identify with and call us versus them, often we rally around things that are insignificant similarities. Insign- we often find identity around things that are actually quite insignificant, such as skin color, such as hobbies. Helpful, I mean, hobbies are great, but they become identifying factors for us. That, oh, these are my people because we eat sushi, right? That sort of thing or industry, or college, or income status, or political leanings, right? And what happens is when we rally around those sort of subgroups as our core identity, we can begin to demonize those who are different or disagree with our world view. Here's a great example. Let's talk about denominations in the church. And I'm not advocating they're evil. I'm not opposed to them at all. But I would say many of them were invented to create the exact opposite of church unity which is directly opposed to Jesus' longings in John chapter 17, that we would all be one. I mean, you think about denominations. Does anyone know how many denominations exist? Take a guess. Anyone? Participation. Anyone? How many? 65. Too low. Who else? Too low. Too low. Too low. 40,000 denominations exist in the Christian church. Let that rattle around your brain as you read John 17, right? Denominations often create distance between Christians. 
and often over minor issues in the scheme of eternity. I mean, many of our differences, they're actually unintelligible to those outside the church. They have no idea why we're so divided and why such and such would actually divide us. Rather than unifying around the message of the gospel, we bifurcate around issues such as predestination or free will, traditional or contemporary, choir robes or no choir robes. I mean, it's crazy. It's madness. And those differences are then used to demonize those within our own religion, within our own faith group. We've used them to demonize. Well, they're not us, right? They play the organ. That's not us, right? I mean, this is how this plays out. And this has been an issue since the first century. Nothing new here. Paul writes, Paul writes to the church in Galatians, Galatians 3, there's neither Jew nor Greek. Saying in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek. Those, oh, let me dismantle your categories of how you are defining yourself and who's in and who's out and where you belong. There's neither Jew nor Greek anymore. There's neither saved nor free. There's neither male nor female for all are one in Christ Jesus. In other words, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's the distinctions based on ethnicity are dismantled in the kingdom of God. In fact, God honors difference and sees them all together. Sees them that we actually complete one another in our ethnicities and their distinctions. They belong together. There's neither slave nor free. In other words, he dismantles the notion that socioeconomics should separate us. He dismantles gender of male and female to say, we're all one. We all need one another. We connect in that way. Paul dismantles the worldview that we have inherited from society that wants to pull us apart and divide us. Distinctions are helpful when applied to cuisines. They're unhelpful when used to subordinate people groups and bolster our identities. Unhelpful assumptions such as all black people are suspicious. That's ridiculous. Or all Muslims are terrorists. Or all police officers are racist. It's preposterous. All refugees are deviant. I am eternally grateful that God didn't choose to build a giant wall between us. These stereotypes are about as unreliable as someone claiming that all Christians subscribe to the Ku Klux Klan. That's ridiculous. Not only are stereotypes lazy, but they're almost always inaccurate. And not only almost always inaccurate, but they're almost always dehumanizing. And once you get there, the gate swings wide open to justify all sorts of actions and hatred and bigotry and even murder. The Sunday after the Orlando shooting in the nightclub, uh, I lived in Orlando. I grew up in Orlando. And I drove, by, I drove by Pulse every day on the way to work at a church that I worked at for three years. Every day I drove by that nightclub. And one of my friends who pastors a, a, a rather large church in Nashville did one of the most honoring and dismantling things he could have done that Sunday. I mean, it was amazing. He has this, this huge screen. It's like a Dallas stadium screen, right? And it's crazy, it's crazy size. And he posts every single name. And they took time in their church to stop and to pray. And they asked their community to pick out names and pray for their families. And by name, they honored these victims. 49 unique individuals, every single one of them with their own story, with their own hopes, with their own dreams, not widgets. Alton Sterling from Louisiana, Philando Castile from Minnesota, both unique 
and wonderfully made in God's image, not widgets. From the Dallas Police Department, Brent Thompson and Patrick Zamaripa and Michael Kroll and Michael Smith and Lorna Ahrens, all unique and wonderfully made in God's image, not widgets. That the gospel frees us from making widgets out of people and invites us to see them how they really are from God's vantage point as unique individuals who are each made in the image of God. I want you to consider this. Jesus, the Son of God, eternally around, part of the Trinity, was made into an individual. And I think the individuality of the Son of God reminds us that God sees every single person who ever lived and loves them and invites them into eternal life to reign with God forever. All this on the basis of what Christ has done on our behalf. Not that as we as the man was trying to justify ourselves, God's saying, I have justified you. I've given you identity. Receive my identity over you. And let me expand your worldview to see life how I see it, regardless of gender and race and socioeconomics and whatever other categories we can conceive. Are we doing all right? Are we in this? We okay? Three of you? All right. I'm moving toward the end here. Jesus is saying this to the man. Back to the parable that your category for Samaritans is overly simplistic and you need to expand your worldview if you're actually going to live into eternal life. You need to expand it if you're going to truly discover who your neighbor is. Here, the question isn't, who is my neighbor? The question is, who isn't my neighbor? That's a better question. Not how can I minimally define this, but how can I maximally participate in this? That's a different come from. That's a different spirituality. That's the kind of life that Jesus is after for us. And it is uncomfortable and it dismantles our categories and worldviews and calls us not to be lazy and cognitive misers, though our brains want to naturally go that way, but to challenge the process and to think through the unique individuality of every person and their own stories and dreams. Let's finish by talking about the cosmos. The misers, the widgets, and the cosmos. My advice this morning is this. Follow the cosmos. Science is now telling us that the universe is ever-expanding. It's interesting. I love science. I love studying physics. I love seeing, seeing the connections between what we're figuring out and seeing, oh my gosh, it's so much more mysterious than we ever thought that we even can't get our arms wrapped around it. How about inserting God there? That's mysterious. It's beautiful. It's amazing what's happening. This idea of the universe expanding. I like to think about the universe is constantly reaching into the darkness of void and filling it. This beautiful idea of this expanding universe. And I have to think this, that perhaps this expansion of the universe reflects the pattern of God's relentless love in all the world. 
maybe we can make some connections between what's happening in the universe that God created and released to be, that maybe we can make connections between what's happening there and what God's love is wanting to do here, to spill, to reach into the void, to go into the darkness, to begin to dismantle stereotypes and create unity. But you, the myth of being Christian is this. The myth of being Christian is we can stay where we are and follow God that we can stay the same and follow this expansive God. That's a myth. The truth is this. The same gospel that imparts the gift of grace in you will eventually begin to make demands of you which expands our capacity to love those who are not you. Most people aren't up for that. And that's why Jesus constantly had people walk away. I'm going to say this again, because this might be the most important thing I've ever said. The same gospel that imparts the grace, the gift of grace in you, will eventually begin to make demands on you which expand our capacity to love those who are not you. Jesus saying to the man in this parable, if you want eternal life, if you're serious about that, you must become like God and learn to expand your capacity to love. Because I'm going to tell you this. When this is all settled and the kingdom of God is fully here, there's not going to be any denominations. There's not going to be any distinctions in racial groups. Actually, there will be, and it'll be honored and celebrated different cultures that are gathered into the one true God. And we'll celebrate the other, the difference, the distinctions, because they make us better. They make us richer. They make us wiser. The gospel calls us into this pattern of expansion. The Good Samaritan parable has so much to tell us about following Jesus in our time. And I would encourage you this evening, before you go to sleep, and maybe every day this week, read this text from Luke 10. And just begin to ask God, would you make some connections for me about how I need to expand and who I need to expand for? Because it can't just be about me and what I get. How does what I believe begin to spill out? How do I begin to expand to include the other? Who is just annoying me right now that God, you even want to expand my love for them? Who is that person? Who are those people groups? Where are their dismantling of stereotypes that need to come down in your life in order to see people as images of God? I want to close by simply doing this. I just want to invite us to stand together as we're dismissed. I'm going to, um, there's zero pressure here. I'm going to, I'm going to do um, what the church has called a liturgy. And it's just a big fancy word for saying we're going to pray together. And liturgy means work of the people. It means that when we come to church, we actually come to work. Not like get busy and, and earn something. But we come to do labor. We come to intercede. We come to join our hearts to work on behalf of the world. To say we're gathered here not just to feel good about ourselves, though that I, I think that happens and that's beautiful. But we're gathered because we believe that there's a collective work that the church is called to be for the world. So when we pray, we believe God is actually doing things on behalf of the church's cry, who the Spirit is a part of and in and crying through. 
Does that make sense? So like you're more than an attender. You're not just an attender. You're not a spectator. You're a participant in what God is doing in the world. And we do that together every time we gather. And so what I've done is there's just some simple prayers that I've put on the screen. And if, if, if they resonate with your heart, I want to ask you to work with me on behalf of the world to intercede with me for, for the groaning of the Spirit from Romans 8 that it says to cry out from us, saying, yes, Lord. And I just, I just want to invite you to say, yes, Lord, if, if it resonates with you. And if it doesn't, you don't have to say anything. You can just observe and sit there and just either disagree with it, and that's, you're perfectly welcome to do that, or think about it, right? So no pressure here. I just want you to respond, yes, Lord, if you resonate as we close today. So Father, Son, Holy Spirit, hear our prayer. We pray for the personal increased conviction among Christians to stand for the sanctity of all human life. Yes, Lord. We pray for a national increased conviction over the sin of murder. Yes, Lord. We pray for the unity of the church as the global people of God, including this local church. Yes, Lord. We pray for courage to speak up on behalf of the last, the least, the lost, the left out, and the looked over. Yes, Lord. We pray for an impartial justice system that reflects your heart. Yes, Lord. God, this is really hard. Help us, because we cannot do this without your empowering spirits. Yes, Lord. So friends, may your worldview be enlarged to reflect the pattern of God's ever-reaching love. And may you extend the peace of Christ to all who you meet this week. Go in peace.